good evening, Hallows Church. Thank you. It's going very well. How are you today? Uh, as we get underway in our study of the scriptures, I want to invite you to pray with me one more time as we dive in. God of grace, God of mercy, God of love, God of kindness, God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We gather tonight as your church, and as we come to these moments, we come to sit under the teaching of your word, and God, we ask that you would remove every distraction, that you would silence the voices that speak loudly in our hearts and minds, and focus our hearts' attention upon you. God, we ask that these next few moments, you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law, that you would speak to us, and through the Holy Spirit, you would bring about transformation, you'd empower our lives to make much of you in the world that is, so that more and more people might hear your gospel, and by your grace, join us in the world that is to come. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good evening again, Hallows Church. My name is Bryant, and I serve as one of the pastors here. And today, as I stand before you, I stand on the cusp of 20 years of serving Jesus and his church as a minister of the gospel. <laughs> now, it feels weird to say that I've done anything for 20 years, uh, but this has absolutely been the joy and the privilege of my life. Uh, now, when I think about where I was 20 years ago, what was going on in my life, I was a uh, far less experienced uh, person in life. Uh, but the one thing that I had grown confident or sure of uh, for that season of my life at least, and it, it has continued since then, uh, is that God had called me uh, to preach and teach his word. I came to that conclusion, that surety, that confidence after spending about a year earnestly praying and seeking God and hearing from others by way of counsel and affirmation and coming out of that period uh, was sure that this is the thing that God had called me to do with the life that he had given me. Now then, 20 years ago, that looked a lot different in my mind, in my life, just the context I was coming out of. And so I can say today that God has done far above and beyond what I could have ever thought or imagined him to do uh, in how he has called me to serve him and to serve alongside his church. And what I've experienced in my own heart in that time as I've sought to walk with and help others understand uh, what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to live out his purposes for their life, is I experienced a reverential humbling. Uh, the more and more I walk with Jesus and see him at work in the hearts and lives of other people, the more he looms larger and larger as I realize that I have no power, no means by which to see people come to faith in Jesus, that it is absolutely a work of his spirit, but he in his kindness has chosen to use broken people like you and I to be a part of that process of seeing people reconciled in relationship to him. And this has left me feeling smaller and smaller, but with that a great deal of comfort that it's not it's not up to me. It's all up to him. And what that has evoked in my heart is a greater sense of worship of him. So it's my humble privilege, again, tonight to lead us in our study of the scriptures as we open our Bibles, or however we engage the scriptures, uh, and turn our attention to the 96th number of the Psalms. 
And what I hope to do in these next few moments is to show us from this passage how we, as those who have experienced and have been saved by the glorious grace of God, inevitably are to move from worship to witness. I want to help us see that our witness to the greatness and goodness of God and our proclamation of the salvation that we have received from his hand are first and foremost, they are foundationally rooted in our worship of him. Now this week as I, as I meditated on this passage, uh, I was reminded of the overall theme of the book of Psalms. If you know anything about the Psalms, it is the, the Hebrew songbook. There are 150 songs in this songbook found right in the middle of our Bible. And there are themes that range anywhere from psalms or songs of gladness and praise and adoration to those that are even to be sung in times of mourning and lament. But as I was reminded of this overall theme, that no matter what season of life we are in, we can still come to our God and praise him and call out to him. I found myself in worship whether it was through prayer, praising God for his many blessings in my life, or whether I was led to begin to sing his greatness through song, my heart being stirred and my body energized and my mind enthralled, I found myself in moments trembling in worshipful awe and reverence of who our God is and what he does for us, what he has done and what he continues to do for us on a daily basis. Have you ever been that excited? Where where you trembled, you shook with excitement, just full of, of whatever it was that was inside of you because of what you were thinking about or what you were experiencing or what you were anticipating. Well, this week, time and time again, I, I was led to moments in which, like the psalmist, my soul cried out, hallelujah. As we look at Psalm 96, one of the things that we should note is that this song, this psalm, has appeared once before in the Bible. It was commissioned by Israel's King David in 1 Chronicles chapter 16 as a psalm of thanksgiving in response to the ark of God, which represented God's presence, being brought back into the city of God, which is Jerusalem, because it had been stolen, it had been confiscated, it had been removed from Jerusalem by the Philistines, who were the enemies of God's people. And you might remember a little bit about the Philistines because we learned about them last fall as we journeyed through our study in the book of Judges. David commissioned this psalm to lead the people of Israel in worship to their God. But it is believed that here, as we find it in the Psalms, in the book of Psalms, this psalm has, in essence, been given a new setting, giving a new arrangement, as it were, so that the Gentiles, people like you and I, non-Jewish peoples, might worship and respond to Jehovah God as we experience his saving grace in the gospel. This song has four stanzas that lead us on a journey from worship to witness. And if we were to zoom out and take the 5,000-foot flyover, we'd see that in verses 1 through 3, we are instructed to worship. In verses 4 through 6, we are informed of God's greatness. In verses 7 through 9, we are invited to respond to the revelation of God's greatness. And finally, in verses 10 through 13, we are impelled to witness 
of his graces. And that's I-M-P-E-L, which means to, to prompt or incite, not I-M-P-A-L-E, which means to stab. <laughs> now, as I see and I think about this progression, I'm reminded of the season uh, I spent in student ministry several years ago. Uh, my friend Jeff, who served as a student pastor, began his ministry uh, with the purpose of focusing on helping students grow to a place of health in their relationship with God before focusing on getting them out to, to share their faith, to share the gospel. Now, this, this was neither a, uh, an either-or, but kind of a, a chicken before the egg, which, kind of, which comes first, the chicken or the egg kind of scenario. Uh, but you see, the premise was that healthy disciples which is those who are worshiping Jesus and responding to him in love and obedience, will readily and joyfully share the hope they have in him. And I saw this play out over and over again in the lives of teenagers. That as they fell in love with the Savior, their hearts began to, to respond in worshipful obedience, and they in turn began to naturally talk about and share with others the one they found their delight in. I saw it play out in my own life. And tonight, I think this is the paradigm that is at work when we look at Psalm 96. So let's zoom in a little closer and dive into the passage and see that we are first instructed to worship. Look with me again at verses 1 through 3 where the psalmist writes, Sing a new song to the Lord. Let the whole creation, let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Proclaim his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wondrous works among all peoples. Now, as those who are not a part of the covenant people of God, Israel, but find ourselves in covenant relationship with him by grace through faith, we are instructed to sing a new song to the Lord. Now, does this mean that we're to uh, begin writing new worship songs or hymns and no longer uh, sing the songs that have been handed down to us through the generations? I don't think that's exactly what it means. But what I think this means is that we are to, to sing a new song of praise to our God, whereas once before we did not sing praise to him. The songs we once sing, sang were songs of pride, of pleasure, of prosperity, of, of prejudice, and even more. But the new songs that we are to sing are songs of praise that flow from a heart, a heart of flesh that now beats in the direction and in response, no longer in rebellion to the one who created it. The new song is the song of salvation. And as it has been said, an, a new salvation creates a new heart, which suggests a new song. Now, why is it that the psalmist begins here? Well, as it's been my personal experience with a new disciple, the first steps of obedience, the first steps of what it looks like uh, to walk in relationship with God oftentimes have to be spelled out. And this instruction it's why it comes to us. As those who have been given new hearts, are, we are now instructed to sing a new song to the Lord. And this instruction, it's not, it's not just for us, but it's for the whole earth. All creation is to sing a new song. 
I think about what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 22, which was written hundreds of years after this psalm was written. He says, for the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay and the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. So not only are those who receive this great salvation, that's you and I, as we have trusted in the gospel, not only are we to sing about it, but the whole earth is to join in the song of redemption. But notice in the passage the verb let. How are we to let the whole earth sing to the Lord? Well, I think the answer is found in Mark's gospel's recording of the Great Commission. Where in Mark 16, 15, Jesus is recorded saying, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. We are then instructed to sing to the Lord, to bless his name, to proclaim his salvation from day to day. Uh, The well-known English preacher Charles Spurgeon says that the gospel is the clearest revelation of God. That salvation outshines creation and providence. Therefore, let our praises overflow in that direction. Yes, God's glory is clearly on display in the creation. And and in his grace, we are able to enjoy a lot of that in this part of the country, in in the Pacific Northwest. We see his glory on display as he is at work in the, the details of our life. It's not luck, but it's God's providential hand at work, and we give him glory for that. But the greatest thing we give him praise and worship for is the salvation that we have received from his hand. And Charles Spurgeon says, our praise should overflow in that direction. But again, this new song is a song of salvation and not not our salvation, but it's his salvation. We are to sing of his salvation, declare his salvation from day to day. We've been saved by his grace. Salvation has been given to us by God. He has rescued us from sin and death through the the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This is the song we are to sing. And to let the whole earth sing in response to the goodness and grace of God in Christ. The gospel. The gospel is the glory of God. And we are to declare it among the nations. The ethne. And as this stanza, this verse of the song closes, it explains that the nations are all the peoples of the earth. But not only in this psalm are we instructed to worship, but then we are informed of the greatness of God. The psalmist essentially tells us to worship first, and then he tells us why we are to worship. Look with me in verses 4 through 6. He says, for the Lord is great and is highly praised. He is feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Now in the short time I've had the privilege of being a parent, 
It's become my observation that oftentimes command precedes or comes before explanation. And of course, this is mostly because our son is almost three years old. But we're not exactly having, having abstract conversations from which he can draw great conclusions from life just yet. So we've got we to gotta keep it simple. Uh, but what he needs from us right now are concrete commands like go to the potty, put your shoes on, go to the table, put your clothes in the basket. But he's also getting to the stage and the age where he's beginning every now and again to ask the question, why? So for his benefit and for his future understanding as we tell him and ask him to do things, we are beginning to inform him of why he should do what he's being told or what he's been asked. Well, I see this process at work here in Psalm 96. I think the psalmist is doing this. We are first instructed and then we are informed. We're informed of the, the greatness of our God, just opposed to the little G-gods our hearts once worshipped and are still tempted to worship and bow before. He says, for the Lord is great and is highly praised. He is feared above all gods. For all the gods, the little G-gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. You see, God is high. But these little g-gods are low. He is above and they are beneath. They are idols. They are literally non-gods, but the Lord made the heavens. You see, our hearts and minds here are being directed to that which is truly deserving of our worship. That which will truly satisfy our heart's longings. You see, we spend our lives seeking comfort, seeking pleasure, seeking success and security. But the things that we pursue in this life, in this world, are lacking and they leave us wanting. <laughs> but not Jesus. When our hearts are convinced of these truths and we begin to live in light of these realities, it, it, it begins to inspire the new song of salvation that we sing. And it empowers us to declare the glory of God, the gospel, to those who have not yet tasted and seen for themselves that the Lord is indeed good. See, this is liberating truth. It is life-changing truth. We begin to understand what Jesus meant when he said that he had come to set the captives free. The brokenness of this world's systems, they are, they are rooted ultimately in our brokenness of relationship with God. All kind of oppression, marginalization, racism, sexism, abuse, manipulation, and any other ills of society that come to mind or that you have experienced, they are rooted in the brokenness of our relationship with a holy God. But when our lives and our hearts are oriented toward the things that promise us pleasure, position, and power, we are left feeling exposed. We're left feeling naked, which causes us to respond just like our parents, Adam and Eve. Instead of running to God, the very one who can restore and cover us, we run and we hide. What our hearts, what our hearts truly crave can only, only be found in God. 
which is why the psalmist declares, splendor and majesty are before him. You want to experience these great things? Don't go looking for them elsewhere in the creation. Come to him. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary, in his hiding place, in his safe place. The word beauty in Psalm 96 is rendered joy in 1 Chronicles 16, which rings of Psalm 16:11, another of David's psalms that says, You make me to know the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You want to experience joy like you've never experienced in this life and that God has intended for you to experience for all eternity? Don't go looking for it anywhere else but in his presence. Because in his presence is the fullness of joy. And the psalmist says that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Well, we know this side of the cross, who is seated at the right hand of God? But Jesus. Jesus is our eternal joy and our crown. You want to experience joy? You want to experience pleasures? You run to the Father's presence and you will find it there in Jesus alone. You see, the greatness that we all desire in this life and all pursue on some level, it's really only found in relationship with God. And to worship means that we are truly satisfied to see him in that place of exaltation and not ourselves. To worship means that we find joy in not being the man or being the woman, not being the one that everyone looks to. But to worship means that we are simply pointing others to the one that can satisfy their soul's desires. That's what it means to worship. Because as the psalmist says, he is great and he is highly praised. But after having our hearts informed of the greatness of God, we are then invited to respond. So look with me at verses 7 through 9 in this passage. The psalmist says here, ascribe to the Lord, you families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and enter his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. And here it is again, let, let the whole earth tremble before him. Now here, the call is for the nations, the, Gentiles, the Gentile peoples of the world who, who now are able to have peace with God through the promised Messiah, Jesus. The call is to ascribe or to, to give tribute to the Lord in response to his greatness. And they are to ascribe this to him alone, glory and strength. We, we are to declare in our new song of salvation that there is no one who saves like our God. And you see, from beginning, from this declaration at the outset, Psalm 96, 1, sing a new song to the Lord, all the way down to here, it's all linked and it all flows out of that single command. We are called and invited as we ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name to bring an offering and enter his courts. As Spurgeon notes, we are to come with an unbloodied sacrifice. Atonement for sins having been made through the cross of Christ, it only remains to bring thank offerings to our God. 
And in my heart, I can't help but be reminded of Paul's words from Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God. You want to know what these mercies are? Go back and read Romans 1 through 11. He says, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Why? For this is your true worship. The offering that we are to bring as we come into his court is that of we ourselves. And as the writer of the Hebrews admonishes us, he says, through Jesus, through him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that confess his name. Our offering is our whole self as we trust in his saving grace as revealed through the cross of Jesus. This is the invitation to rightly respond to the God we have been instructed to worship and informed of his greatness. Our worshipful response should be in keeping with what God has revealed to us about himself. The psalmist says he is great and he is highly praised. So our worship should be keeping in keeping with his greatness and how highly he is to be praised. The psalmist tells us that there is none like him in what he has accomplished in creation and salvation. So our worship should be in keeping with that. We are inspired and invited to worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. To be holy is to be set apart. It's, it's to be unlike any other thing. And this is who our God is. And therefore it demands that our worship be in keeping with that. It should be holy unlike any other thing, unlike any other activity that we engage in in life. Worship should be holy because God is holy. And because he is holy, the whole earth, all the peoples, all creations should, re, should tremble and worship before him. But you see, our worship is not complete. For many of us, this is where it ends. We, we sing, we learn, we respond, and it ends there. But the greatness of God is not meant to be experienced and absorbed only. We see in 2 Corinthians 5 that in Christ we have become new creations, that the old has passed away and the new has come. And in light of being created anew in Christ, we've been given the incredible privilege of heralding the very gospel that came to us, to others, as we serve as Christ's ambassadors, essentially pleading with people to be reconciled to God. And so, the last thing that we see in this psalm is how we are impelled to witness. Look with me at verses 10 through 13. The psalmist says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be shaken. He judges the peoples fairly. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea and all that fills it resound. Let the fields and everything in them celebrate. Then all the trees of the forest will shout for joy before the Lord, for he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his faithfulness. I believe the journey that we've been on as we have come through this psalm is one that takes us from worship to witness. 
And I believe we find the culmination here in these last few verses. We are told to say among the nations. Now, I think just in those few words, in that phrase, it is inherent there is a going to the nations. Because you can't exactly say something among a people that you're not among, right? <laughs> Which corresponds succinctly with Jesus' commission found in Matthew 28, 19, where he says, Go, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, in a city like Seattle, like metropolitan cities throughout human history, you don't have to look very far to find ethnic diversity. But there are still nations, there are still peoples who are in the far reaches of the globe with little to no access to the good news that follows that simple phrase, say among the nations, here's the good news, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be shaken. He judges the peoples fairly. Why is this good news to the nations? Because as they live in darkness, they wonder who is in charge, who is in control, who holds their fate in their hands. And we get the privilege of bringing the good news and declaring that the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. When, when you're in a society or in a culture that is polytheistic, is, is believing in idols, you feel as though you are at the mercy of those gods. You are fearful of them. But the good news of the gospel is that the world is firmly established. Why? Because the Lord made the heavens. And as it said earlier in the psalm, he is to be feared above all gods. Those gods you don't have to fear any longer because the Lord reigns. He made the heavens. He has firmly established the earth. And it cannot be shaken. He is the one who judges the peoples fairly. The news we are to carry to all those who have yet to hear near and far is this simple. Jesus is on the throne. And Jesus, before giving the Great Commission, declared such. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He then essentially said to his disciples, and he says to us, I reign, go tell the nations. So we can confidently declare that because he reigns, he's in charge. The world is firmly established and cannot be shaken. There is nothing that slips through the hands of the Almighty, nothing and no one. And his justice, his justice is fair. He judges the peoples fairly, which means that he can't be bribed or swindled. His judgment and his justice have been fully dealt out through the cross of Jesus Christ. It's been said that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, and it is because there is nothing and no one who is greater than Jesus but, and there is also no sacrifice that is greater than his. The judgment that God brings, the righteous judgment that he brings is in light of the cross. Therefore, there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who are trusting in the Savior as they stand before a holy God when he deals out his judgment. And there are those who are not. The psalmist says that he is coming. And that he will judge the earth and he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his faithfulness. As we worship our God and witness of his greatness, we have not fully shared the gospel 
if we have not proclaimed that he is coming. There are many throughout the ages, and 1 Peter tells us of this, that, that they count God's slowness as, as though he is not really going to fulfill his promise. But, but Peter says to, to the Lord, a day is as a, a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The reason why he has not come yet, but he is coming, is that he wishes that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. But there is a day when time will be up, and when it is, he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his faithfulness. This is good news. This is something to rejoice in. And you might wonder what your opportunities to witness are. Well, I think they're all around. They're all around me. They're all around you. They're in your home, your neighborhood, the shops you frequent, your workplace, the places you recreate. There are ample opportunities to witness but I wonder if the problem with our witness might be more accurately diagnosed as a problem with our worship. Are you in worshipful, reverential awe of who God is? Do you sing to him in response of his great salvation? And if not, this is a moment where I think we are encouraged to press into and pray the prayer of David from Psalm 51 where he calls out to God and says, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. No. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will turn to you. You see, even here, the right response to what God has done through Jesus towards us is to proclaim this good news to others. It might be overwhelming to think of reaching the nations, but some of us sitting here today might be pondering if God might be calling us to go to the nations. If that's a calling he's placed on your heart, say it, speak it out. Allow God to, to affirm, to confirm that in your heart through your faith family. To affirm the work of his hand in and on your life that we might have the privilege and the opportunity to commission you to the nations. But some of you might be overwhelmed with thinking about that. But I would ask you to consider who might be the one, the one that God has placed in your life that he might already be at work in, drawing to himself, and setting you up to declare his glory, the gospel, to them. You see, we can look all around us and see the witness of what others in our city and our culture are worshiping. But the question for us, for the gathered church of God tonight, is what is, what is being witness of as the world sees us? Do they see us finding our joy, our pleasure in the God who saves? Do they see us exulting in him and finding our soul's satisfaction in him? Is that what they are witnessing? Or are they witnessing something else? If it's something else in your heart that's being made witness to, apart from the greatness of God, I would encourage you to call out to him and ask him to restore to your heart the joy of his salvation. Because in that, he will use you. He will use your life. He will use your witness to bring others into relationship with him.
they seeing our worship? And is it leading to the witness of our God's greatness and goodness through the cross of Jesus? Would you pray with me, church?